in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse uh, verse 30 uh, today, and we'll go through the end of the end of the chapter. Um, it's quite a lengthy, a lengthy section of text, but it needs to be needs to be treated as a as a unit because it is what what you'll see when you kind of back up from this this section of text, you can see that there's a lot about testimony, testifying, and it's basically like a, a law court situation that's that's going on in this in this section. And Jesus himself, as we've seen, as we saw in the previous uh, section, is actually the judge. But but actually the, the people think they're judging him, but in fact, uh, he is the one who has been appointed judge of all the world. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna look at this. Look at this, reiterate some of the things, not much of what we said last week, but picking up on that same kind of train of thought of Jesus as son of man and the way that that, that title of son of man is, is not simply just to say, hey, he's human, but it's to say that look at Daniel chapter 7 and see what has happened to this son of man figure. He's been exalted to the right hand of God. He is actually there as judge of all the nations. Right? So it's a role that Jesus is playing rather than rather than just simply saying something about his nature as a human. So we're going we're gonna to spend some time on this. We'll also um, in, so be basically in, in two parts, 530 through 38. And uh, there in the middle, you have this um, kind of an accusation that, that Jesus then brings against them in the law court, in the court of law that, that he's constructing. Um, and then uh, 39 through 47, uh, we have uh, more, actually more testimony about them. And uh, anyway, hopefully, hopefully we'll see something uh, interesting in that, in that section about what, what Jesus is ultimately doing um, and what he's, what he's really getting at is he um, about Moses, about the Torah. So uh, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll, we'll get started. Father, thank you for this time. We do thank you for your word and, and the way that it changes our lives, the way that it testifies of you. And I pray, Father, that uh, you would give us uh, give us insight, help us, Father, to become better readers of your word, uh, that we might understand your will, and uh, that we might know Jesus uh, better. We thank you, Father, for, uh, for this congregation. We pray that uh, your spirit would have its way in our lives and, uh, through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing, Jesus says, of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John. And he testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be delivered. He was the, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is, a great, is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, they testify of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. 
you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We looked last week at the way that the future resurrection was bursting into the present with Jesus coming into the world. I think it's the air I'll try to speak louder too. So we looked last week at the way that the future resurrection was bursting into the present with Jesus is coming into the world. Jesus said, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. That resurrection life, the life of God's new age that he will fully and finally bring about in the future. That life has come into the present. We call this inaugurated eschatology where the future age, the resurrection, has been inaugurated in the present, becoming visible in God's people that he is creating in Christ. And it will be fully consummated in the future. We also saw how the future resurrection coming into the present meant that what we see Jesus doing in the gospel is bringing this reality about. This was Jesus's mission, not simply to come and die and magically save us, but to bring the resurrection life into the present. Indeed, when we set this mission over against John chapter 1, where God through his logos, the word, is bringing about new creation, as he brought about the original creation in Genesis 1, we can see that the new creation and resurrection actually overlap as two different dimensions of the same reality. To bring resurrection life into the present is to bring about new creation. A reversal of the death brought into the old creation by Adam, by a resurrection brought into the new creation by the new Adam. We will see this when we get to John chapter 19, that even Pilate himself, himself speaks truth when he says, behold, the man. He puts, forth, he puts forward Jesus as the new Adam without even knowing what he's saying. Surely we are right on track here since both Genesis 1 and John 1 began with in the beginning. We also saw last week, though we didn't spend a lot of time on it, that Jesus was given or was to be given the authority to judge the world. He is the son of man. And as such, God has appointed him to judge the world in the future. This too is an aspect of inaugurated eschatology. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he will ascend to the right hand of the ancient of days and he will be given authority over the nations. This is what in the other gospels is, is phrased as, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds or going on the clouds. That's what it's all about. Not Jesus coming to earth, but going to the ancient of days to receive the authority to judge the nations. 
This is what we should hear in any Great Commission sermon. We need to re-infuse our Great Commission preaching with a Son of Man theology that is fully rooted in the scriptures and their fulfillment. That's where the power is. It is covenantal fulfillment, kingdom of God fulfillment, new exodus fulfillment, and new creation fulfillment. All of this is based on Jesus' status as judge of the world, judge of all the nations. In John's gospel, this judgment, or the basis for it, is currently becoming manifest. And John and Jesus speak of it as a reality that has burst onto the scene with his arrival. The judgment has come from the future into the present. That judgment, the great court scene that is envisioned when thrones are set up in Daniel 7, is coming, into the, is coming in the future. But as Jesus walks about saying what he hears the Father saying and doing what the Father is doing, like an apprentice following in his master's steps, he is, so to speak, putting the people who are exposed to him on trial and bringing the great court scene into the present. In this court scene, the things he does and the words he says are the witnesses that the jury, his audience, and now the reader is being asked to deliberate. Not to push the analogy too far, but the decision of the jury will determine whether they themselves are put on trial. And it turns out, indeed, they will be put on trial as they fail to believe the witnesses, the accusations in, in verses 37 through the end of chapter 5. Those accusations are then brought against the jury. The tables will turn, so to speak, and those who put him on trial through their judgment of him will themselves put on be put on trial and condemned. Anyone who hasn't come to be known by God in Christ should take this to heart. You may be passing judgment on Jesus and the scripture's testimony of him now, but you will be judged by the evidence and without partiality. The audacity of judging the impartial judge. What one does with Jesus in the present determines one's future judgment status, a resurrection unto life we saw last week, or a resurrection unto contempt for not having believed in the only Son of God. One can tell in the present who, can, who has passed from death into life by what they do with Jesus. That's the point of this passage. What you do with Jesus says, this is where I will be, but it also is a way of determining in the present who has passed from death into life. Those who hear his words and believe on him who sent Jesus, in Jesus' own words, will not be condemned, he says, at the future judgment. And if the reader gets it wrong, the reader will find himself in the defendant's chair with charges brought against him, facing a future verdict on the basis of not believing the evidence. This is what Jesus and John are getting at in this passage. I mentioned last week, but it bears repeating in this light. If you, have, uh, if you study Paul's understanding of justification by faith, this is exactly how justification by faith works. It is John's way of describing what Paul would later codify as justification by faith. When one comes to Jesus... When one comes to Jesus, expressing loyalty to Jesus, laying down one's arms to follow him, he gains life. Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In the present, one obtains life. The life that he gains is anticipatory of a future life that believers will enter into when they are resurrected. The verdict of the future day 
is brought into the presence, uh, into the present through faith in Jesus. It is this future resurrection and justification that we wait for, that we hope for, that the creation itself longs for and groans for, because it will experience its own renewal, its own exodus, its own resurrection when the sons of God are finally revealed. Romans 8. We groan for it by the Spirit, the first fruits, waiting eagerly, Paul says, for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this future hope we are saved, he says, in the present, ahead of that final salvation. But hope, he says, that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And it's the Spirit that makes this a reality in the present. The Spirit helps us to see into the future, to see into the land, uh, to eat of the first fruits. Back to John. Jesus is inaugurating this new reality. Life has come to the present from the future, and you and I can have it, or at least the first fruits of it, in the present by believing in Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, giving light to everyone as he came into the world inaugurating that new creation. In verse 30, we can see that Jesus, ha Jesus hasn't left his previous line of thought about being son of man and receiving authority to judge. For here he continues to press on with the claim that though he doesn't judge on his own initiative, but always and only what he hears from his wise father, he is indeed exercising a judgment that is true. He is not, however, one who comes in his own name, seeking to gain a following for his own glory. He seeks the will of his father and his father's glory. And this makes all the difference. He is both the messenger and the message, but he isn't the one who did the sending. The father, Paul says, will be all in all. And the father is bearing witness to Jesus by enabling him to do the works he is doing. Verse 36, but the testimony which I have, he says, is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, they testify about me, that the Father has sent me. The idea is this. There is an implicit assumption that if Jesus is performing these deeds and doing them in the name of the Father, then the Father actually sent him. For an emissary to speak about himself for himself on official business for the crown would be to invalidate his mission and message. Jesus does bear witness about himself, but it's not for himself, for the Father has sent him. That's what he bears witness to, that he's been sent. He, like a good emissary, does the will of the one who sent him and is not a rebel out to undermine, undermine his sender. This is what obedience means. And it is on the basis of Jesus's obedience that God will vindicate Jesus by raising him from the dead. Not obedience in some sense of keeping every law in the Bible, but his obedience unto death, whereby he destroys the powers that held people captive and brings God's new creation into reality. He does this, of course, through the sacrifice of himself. But as we see each Sunday, this sacrifice is the Passover sacrifice that shields his people from death, and not merely a sacrifice to prevent people from being punished. In this way, he says in John 3.16, God loved the world and sent his son. It is a rescue mission, and you are the one in need of rescue. God in Christ is resurrecting you if you will believe the words of his son. He is resurrecting the world 
as they turn to Jesus, as it gropes under the power of sin and death. What we see in this section of John is part of Jesus's language of mission. Jesus knows that God's future for the world is upon his shoulders, and he intends to bear it to the end. And he is convincing or attempting to convince the people to whom he, is, he was sent, his own people, that he is indeed on mission to accomplish what has long been promised by the Father. This involves presenting evidence in this case. It is being presented before those who are expected to judge correctly. And if they do, they will not come under judgment. John the Baptist's testimony is important, says Jesus, but it's not as important as the testimony that God himself is giving. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I give, I have, is greater than the testimony of John. The people were happy to entertain the fact that they had a real-life prophet in their midst in John the Baptist. And they rejoiced a little while in that truth, truth, the light that he brought. But they had not embraced his testimony. This seems to be the point here. John had testified that he himself was not that one. But there was one coming after him who would truly baptize them in the spirit. But they had done what their forefathers did in the wilderness. With the land, the resurrection, so to speak, almost in sight, they disobeyed for 40 years, dying in the wilderness and failing to inherit the land. This is one of the main points of John 6, as we'll see later, about eating the manna and dying in the wilderness. The hearts of Jesus' hearers were hard, as were their fathers. God is bearing witness of what he is doing, and they are not hearing God's voice. They are not hearing Jesus. To hear Jesus is to hear the voice of God. This is the charge against them, and it has happened as expected. Failure to hear Jesus's voice has now become evidence against them. It is a charge that Jesus says can be resolved, could have been resolved, were they to listen to him. For he says next, you don't have his word abiding in you because you don't believe me, the one whom the Father sent. How does God whom they had not seen nor heard, testify? It's a serious question. How, how would God testify? How would you do it? Would everyone believe you? I, I doubt it. We often think that God can just do anything he wants. Well, I suppose, but have you dealt with humans? Okay. Uh, truth, truth often becomes elusive. And with so many voices speaking at, at once, it's often difficult to determine what is true. People are people, and they don't respond well to the truth. God gives his evidence, and most don't believe it. Few believe John's, John the Baptist's testimony, but Jesus doesn't receive man's testimony anyway. It's of limited value to have man say anything of you. But God is testifying through the works that Jesus is doing, and they are not believing. The testimony which I have is greater. The very works that I do, they testify about me. At one level, they are simply human, and this is what humans do. But there's a problem that's more fundamental, Jesus says. They have been looking at the right book and reading it in the wrong way. 
The people to whom Jesus came were the covenantal people, the people called to be the light of the world, to be the ones through whom the world would be blessed. As in chapter 8 of John, they, they were to be children of Abraham, and they were to do the deeds of Abraham, but had instead become, as Jesus will call them, children of the devil, not because they had grown horns, but because they didn't embrace the mission of Jesus, the mission of Abraham to bless the nation. This is a very important point. The, to, do the, to do the work of the devil is to prevent God's work going forward within the world. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They had sought to stop that mission in its tracks. They had become fixated on their own status as covenant members and their inheritance, and they couldn't bear the thought of God doing anything at all positive with those Gentiles. The wisdom of God is wiser than men, and through their wicked act of crucifying the Messiah, God would yet accomplish the mission uh, through Abraham, through Jesus. But they had read it all. They had read it all and not understood. It seems baffling to those of us who have believed in Jesus, but again, this is what people do. Some will not believe. Often there is too much affirmation, glory to be gained from peers, and too much loss to be shouldered to go against those peers. Jesus says this to them. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive the glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my name, you will receive you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? I'm convinced that something like this is happening, something like the following is happening here in this text. This is not simply an argument about the authority of Scripture, nor is it simply an argument over a particular interpretation of scripture, though it is that is an issue. It is, they are indeed reading the same book in different ways, and that is important. But the central issue seems to be this. There are certain things that people boast in. There's a certain status that people boast in. And for the Jews, their boast was Torah, the possession of Torah. And Jesus knows this. We have Torah, they might say, the very embodiment of God's wisdom. And the nations have nothing of the sort. The nations cling to their idols and they walk around in darkness. Psalm 147, 19 through 20, captures this, uh, captures this attitude quite well. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt, he has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for, his, as for his ordinances, they have not been made known to them. Praise the Lord almost captures a, uh, a smugness about it, where they are, the, they are the people. They are the chosen people of God. We have the light of Torah. The nations have nothing. And I think this is what Jesus is striking at. We have, what had been given as light was shining its light back upon them. The boast of possession of Torah had become a kind of blinding darkness, blinding them from the actual message of Torah. That seems to be his point. They boast in Moses, they boast in the law, and yet the Torah itself as a message, has a message, and that message is about the coming of Messiah. 
what was given as a light, shining its light back on them. What was indeed a blessing to them, a blessing to share, became an accusation against them. And I suspect this is what is behind what Jesus says here. The national boast of Israel as possessors of Torah, heirs of the one creator God through the covenant, the only people with whom the creator God entered into covenant. Think about that. They, there's a, a national boast that says we are God's people, not them. And this is what he's striking at. Think of that in light of the message of, of the gospel of John. For God so loved the world. What are these people who are opposed to Jesus standing against? That, that reality that, that God is going to save the world, not just that he's not just come to deliver the Jews. The national boast of Israel in Torah had become the accusation against them. That's what Jesus is saying. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The very thing you boast in has become part of the testimony against you. This is the same thing that Paul is getting at in Romans 2, 17 and following as well. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you, te do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Yes, Jesus says, you possess the Torah, called here in John, Moses, short for the Torah of Moses. You possess it, but the very thing you are boasting in to give you life, that is, resurrection, is actually the accusation against you in God's courtroom and has brought unto you death. Those very scriptures spoke of Jesus, the coming king who would rule the nations. But the Jews, the various Jewish pressure groups, had become blind to the actual message of the Torah through their misinterpretation of it. They affirmed one another in their understanding of Torah, and they persecuted those who read it differently. This is what he means by receiving glory from men, affirmation from the herd. They don't love God, he says, the very thing Moses prescribed in the daily prayer of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following, based on the unity of the one God as the God who created the whole world, both Jew and Gentile. And Jesus knows they don't believe in God, not simply because he could read their minds, though he did at times, but because they were persecuting him. And he knew that he was the one about whom the scriptures spoke. He is the king who, according to Genesis 49, would come from the tribe of Judah, receive the kingdom, and rule the nations. The king whose kingdom, according to Numbers 24, would be lifted up. It would grow as he would lead Israel out of their future bondage of Egypt and into the land. He is the king who will fight God's battles on behalf of his people and the one upon whom, the one upon whom blessing and cursing depends, like Abraham. In Numbers 24, that phrase... He will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him is repeated and applied to this king who is going to come. In other words, he is God's anointed king who will bring forward God's, God's promise of blessing for those who embrace him 
But for the Jews, the true interpretation of reality had clouded, was clouded by their seeking the glory of people. Now, this is a, a serious accusation, and it has implications for us today. We have all seen how just a few people can cause people to divide into sides, into differing camps. We must be constantly aware of our tendency as humans to slide back into or not to slide back into a tribal mentality where we form sides and persecute one another. It can affect a millennia of people, generation after generation. Never has there been a more far-reaching sin than the rejection of Jesus by the very people to whom the promises had been made to begin with. The boast of Torah had now be become a witness against them. You see this kind of thing quite often within theological circles. One person will say something that's a little different uh, than has always been said. And the next thing you know, someone calls them a heretic, then two, then the whole denomination, and he's gone. The mentality of the mob, we must be careful to avoid it. Jesus isn't talking, of course, about our mobs that we form, but this is what humans do. And this is what is being done in this passage. The mob is after Jesus. As I bring this to a close, let's look at the big idea of this passage. Jesus, the true king of Israel, as son of man, the judge, through his obedience to the Father's will, through powerful signs and words, will be exalted to the right hand as the rightful ruler over Israel and the nations. It, in, uh, from Jesus' perspective and John's perspective, it is as good as done. Where he is inaugurating that rule during his ministry as the hidden king, so to speak, like David before him, as the rightful king was being persecuted by Saul and his men before taking the throne. Jesus will be and now has been exalted to the right hand. And as such, he is the judge of the whole world. He will defeat every power and reign upon his throne. He has done many things to testify to this reality. And the father has testified about him through his mighty deeds. John the Baptist has indeed testified about him. And if they had only heeded him, they would have been delivered from what would come upon them within a generation when, when God would give over the city and the temple to the legions of Rome. He had warned them. He had given testimony and the disaster could have been avoided. But they made their boast in Torah as a way of securing their own inheritance and preventing others from sharing in that inheritance, not understanding that they were the people through whom the nations were to be blessed. God would remain faithful to his promises through the one from Israel, Jesus the Messiah. He would be the one through whom the nations would be blessed. And in this way, God would accomplish his purposes through Israel's representative and take forward his plan for saving the world. In this court case, in this court case that is brought before us as the readers, you will stand in judgment over it. You will stand in judgment over who Jesus claims to be. And if you do not judge correctly, the testimony will be against you. And you will be the one who becomes the defendant. This is a message, and it's a, it's a very solemn message. And um, I don't, don't mean to be um, to beat a dead horse, but it, it's a very important thing for us to solve, uh, to deal with. Um, are we going to, is the verdict of the future day going to be brought back into the present? And, and is that verdict going to be resurrection unto life? 
or will it be resurrection unto contempt? <laughs> and it all depends. It really depends on what you do. But do you follow him? Are you going to embrace him? Uh, are you going to uh, are you going to enter into the life that he has promised? This is what it's about. So I, I really do invite you to to consider that. And if you have anything that you want to talk about with someone, um, we, we're happy to talk with you. Uh, really, what it amounts to is to call upon the Lord, right? to call upon the Lord, and and um, ask Him to forgive you and to to give you that resurrection, give you that new life. That's uh, that's what it's about. More and more, we see within John, there's this, there's always this, this confrontation that we're we're looking on at Jesus and his enemies and the people. And the people are being pressured in certain ways. And um, they want, it seems as though at times they want to come to Jesus, but they're being prevented by, by their leaders from coming. But there's nothing preventing us uh, except our own stubborn wills. And so um, I pray you would, you would call upon the Lord today if you don't know him.